full disclosure, I am a millennial. So at this point, depending on the demographics of your podcast, half the people will stop listening to me um, because I'm talking about generations as a millennial. Welcome to the FYI for your institution podcast by Mongoose. I'm your host, Mike Kuczynski, and I'm lucky enough to be a client success lead here. I work with about 80 of our 400 client colleges and universities, and today we'll speak with Dr. Scott Klein. He is the Vice President of Enrollment at California College of the Arts. Dr. Klein has previously worked at Stanford University and Chapman University. He's an expert on a slew of topics, but is particularly renowned in financial aid. And in that area, Dr. Klein has served to lead or participate on a number of state, regional, and national committees, including a stint as the lead non-federal negotiator for financial aid administrators with the U.S. Department of Education on Title IV loans negotiated rulemaking in 2015. He's very active on social media. You can find him on Twitter at Scott Klein or scottkline.org, his blog and website. He lives in San Francisco with his wife, Erica, his two-year-old daughter, Harper, and their golden retriever, Zoe. Full disclosure, Scott is a client. However, we promise this podcast will not dwell on texting at all. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And so the reason we were able to hook you into this podcast is you you gave a presentation at, I believe it was the uh, AMA Higher Ed Symposium, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So you were you were speaking about uh, generational labels. So what is sort of your uh, thesis or belief system around uh, labeling based on generations? Uh, well, the I mean, it's tongue in cheek, but I, I labeled the uh, session uh, "Get Off My Lawn," uh, mostly for the joke line. Uh, but the the thing for me is, I mean, full disclosure, I am a millennial, so at this point, depending on the demographics of your podcast, half the people will stop listening to me um, because I'm talking about generations as a millennial. But I think it it simplifies things way too easily. It's a catchphrase and it simplifies, you know, what we do and how we try to classify people. And it doesn't really necessarily have a basis in in true research, I think, to be able to really definitively say this generation, this block of students that is way too wide, way too broad, um, is really all that meaningful when we actually get down to what we're trying to do in enrollment management or particularly trying to get these students to go on to higher education, be successful. Gotcha. And how do you think generational thinking has sort of permeated the the collegiate campus? Well, you have everything from the, the reports that would come out once a year saying, oh, these were these students who are now entering into college, and this is all the things that didn't exist when they were born. Um, and that list would come out for year after year after year. And that assumed that, to begin with, that the most of the students who are going on to college are traditional 17 or 18-year-olds, and that's just not the fact across most right. institutions, particularly community colleges, but a lot of publics and private institutions. That's just not the norm for what student uh, behavior looks like. I mean, it's a big chunk, and it gets all the focus, uh, just like the focus on Ivy League admissions rates when the vast majority of students never apply to an Ivy League school. So it dominates the conversation in a way that's not necessarily helpful, and it permeates the campuses to the point where it drowns out a lot of the other nuance or the conversations that could be happening around how do we meet the needs of our students and meet them where they want to be and how they, they want to be talked to. And what was the inspiration for you to sort of lead this crusade and push back on this kind of thinking? 
uh, other than the fact that I'm a millennial and but I act like a cranky old man uh, most <laughs> of the time, you you hear it way too often talked about um, in the space. And I think um, it it's a it's it's the fact that it becomes just too easy. Be like, okay, so what? How do we need to talk to these people? Well, um, you know, let's just go to the generational model and assume that all these students fit within this mold. But when you actually break it down, it's it's very very similar from generation to generation. It's like, you know, one generation is like saying, oh, they want to you know make the world a better place, but the previous generation didn't. I'm pretty sure right. everybody, when you talk to them, wants to make the world a better place. I don't think you're going to find many people that says, nah. I think I want to make it a worse place. You know, I want to leave it uh, worse off than I currently have. So it simplifies it down too much and uh, and waters down the conversation that I don't think is helpful. So that that's kind of the the premise of where I started with this with this idea. Plus, you know, you always want a laugh line when you start a presentation at AMA. Absolutely. Do you think there's any t- any time where um, generational thinking is actually valid or maybe helpful? I think it's helpful in the context of a starting point. I mean, as long as you use it as as a starting point to start to unwrap conversations or dig into conversations, I think it's really helpful. A lot of the research that is done um, on generations is is a basis of trying to understand where and how the events that shaped um, the formative years of, of a good chunk of these students as they grew up or these people as they grew up. Uh, so for instance, you take millennials and how they were informed by things like 9-11 if they're in the United States or you know, the recession. Certainly. Yeah, exactly. So you, you get to the point where, or technology, you know, uh, not that technology did not exist for other generations, <laughs> but that somehow dramatically it's, it's different now. It's just a different type of technology. And you fall into traps where it's like, oh, the pace of what's happening in the world is, is so much faster today. But, you know, is is that a perspective problem uh, as you look back that everything just always seems slower or better uh, in the past as opposed to currently today? So I think it's it's a the research, the ideas, the frame when you're talking to people is always is a good starting point. It just can't be the end all be all of the conversation. You can't assume that, you know, for instance, you know, Columbine, for instance, that every student experienced that, you know, or or shape where they're going into the into their future. I mean, a lot of our students, to keep in mind, are not, you know, our first generation, you know, so if they came into the United States after Columbine, is their experience going to be the same as if they were actually living in Denver, Colorado, or something like that, or even if they're across the country. Um, So it's a starting point for the context uh, to start to unwrap that conversation. But again, I don't think it should be the end all be all the conversation, you just should assume that everybody is the same across the spectrum. That's great. And so there are uh, authors who have written about generational theory. So folks like uh, William Strauss and Neil Howard, probably the two most prominent. And uh, then I'm a big fan of Adam Conover and the, I would dare I say, semi-viral video he did uh, about generational thinking being uh, erroneous. So if Strauss and Howe are like a one on a continuum, and Adam Conover is a 10 on the continuum. Where do you think you fall on that uh, spectrum or that continuum? 
I would put myself somewhere in the six or seven, um, yeah. just because I believe that more data, more thinking, more ideas is the helpful part of the conversation. I don't think you should exclude the everything and be like, okay, there are no generations. There's no difference that exists or on the other end of the spectrum. I, I'm collect all the data, collect all the thinking and form your own opinion. Certainly. I don't think you should, you know, either take my word or, or, you know, any particular person, but gather it all. And so I'd probably put myself somewhere in a five or a six because I think it's helpful, but everything, all research, all data uh, only has a certain extent that you can actually use it or it's useful. It's then what you do with it after that. And, and there's potential to necessarily, if you're looking at it from a generational angle, to either predetermine what the results are going to be or to uh, interpret them in a way that is generational and perhaps false, right? Exactly. Or it, it's hard to say, but I think it's also a laziness factor. I mean, laziness is probably a, a, an extreme you know, word to use in this, but it's, it's if you have that catch-all and you could assume that like, okay, I need to put together a marketing plan to communicate to uh, the next generation or millennials because that's the current students that, you know, that institution is serving versus 17 or 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes a laziness factor, I think, where it's like, okay, well, we can put together a marketing plan based off of that. It's a catch-all. It'll do good enough. It's cheap. It's easy. As opposed to really wanting to do the hard work um, that's required to really engage with the people that you actually want to be talking to and really ask them, you know, where do they come from? How are they thinking? What are they thinking about? What's important to them? And then really having that conversation uh, with them on an individual level. The problem is that doesn't scale. So how do you actually do that on a scaling up to the, the levels that you can do it efficiently and effectively when you're talking about you know, thousands or tens of thousands of uh, students that you might be talking to in a given cycle. And how do you do that successfully at CCA? Well, we're a niche school. I mean, to be frank, we're an art and design school. Our students mostly self-identify in many ways already. So we can have a lot more of those nuanced levels of conversations as opposed to an institution that receives, you know, tens of thousands of applications and is in a very different position than CCA. So, but particularly to CCA, we work really hard about trying to get our messaging more and more nuanced. So for example, instead of just having like a catch-all you know, this is what we think our first time freshmen are going to uh, be interested in engaging in that way. We really try to break it down and have different types of messaging for first generation students and international students. And even within certain majors or interests, I mean, a student who's interested in, you know, particularly for us, like fine arts is a very different type of student interest than uh, design. And, but at the same time, we still can't cover it all. So you do have to have some type of line. You do have to have some type of plan to say, well, okay, we can, we can do so much. And then it comes down to really having those as you get further and further along in the enrollment pipeline is trying to engage with those students. And instead of talking to them, start by asking questions, I think is, is a really helpful thing to try to draw out and understand. And then using the, the resources that you have, the tool belt that you have to really then connect that student with based off of what they're saying to how it aligns with your institution. That's great. And so what we're talking about is is really kind of more yielding, right? Like identifying why the student applied, why they're still considering CCA, and then using that hook to bring them in, right? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I'd say it's a lot easier on the enrollment side, but it, the 
and I don't think I have the perfect answer to this yet. So um, sorry, spoiler alert, <laughs> but really trying to look at that from a, a higher level funnel perspective and yeah. how do you start to engage with students at that higher level of that conversation where as opposed to just yelling at them, talking to them and hoping that a certain percentage, you know, that you try to tweak every year, it gets better and better of that yield conversion uh, to the later parts of that funnel. Actually looking at can we get more targeted earlier on? I mean, this doesn't work perfectly, but in an ideal world, I want one, you know, inquire, one application, one enrolled student. You know, right. The person who figures out that is going to be a billionaire probably. But, <laughs> right. you know, but that, that's kind of the focus as opposed to just the, the constant trying to grow applications, growing inquirers, because it, it has diminishing returns over and over again. Absolutely. Now, taking a step back, do you think students apply the same generational labels to faculty and staff at their institutions? Uh, it, it's definitely a two-way street. You know, when it's it's across the board where you see you know students applying to faculty and how those faculty um, look and you know act, and it also happens with staff across an institution. So, um, again, back to your question about how does it permeate the institution? Um, it is everywhere in many ways uh, because it is part of the popular culture, the popular narrative that's out there right now. I certainly think. That's great. And I think you made allusions to it earlier, but going back to talking about uh, recruiting and, and if you will, top of the cycle or, or top of the funnel, is there a way to identify demographics in a way that isn't just Creepy. kind of building? Right, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. I th I think there is. The, the question is, you know, how creepy creepy can get um, in this and it, it very quickly becomes creepy but I think it has to do with if you do it in the in the right ways um, you can certainly use it you know for good I mean it's, it's like data it can be used for bad and it can be used for good and um, I think that's a conversation that needs to happen over each institution and exactly what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve that but I think you know you can get a lot of information about people at that top level of the funnel and really start to nuance that conversation you know for instance the students who arrive on your website are you not in a cookie tracking kind of way where it's like okay i'm pulling you know your amazon shopping cart and then cross-referencing with your ip address to get a pretty good geo lock i mean that's the level of creepiness but not you know but allowing students to really engage with you easily and on the terms that they want to either on your website or your social to really self-identify their own user journey it's it's like that those classic, um, I have a two-year-old, so she's not exactly into these yet, but you know, those, those pick your own adventure books. I'm really looking forward to when she, when she starts to be able to, you know, get into those types of books because it's like, how is your website, is your social media presence allowing them to pick their own adventure to really get into that depth of ideas and thinking? Do you have multiple pathways into your programs? And so, you know, the discoverability of like, oh, you know, for instance, one example we have here at CCA is a textiles program. I'm pretty sure the percentage of high school students uh, in the U.S. who know anything whatsoever about textiles is probably in the 0.0001%. But once students discover it, 
it's amazing how many students are really interested in, in bringing it into other parts of, of what they do, whether or not it's on the design side or the architecture side, but we have a discoverability problem. So it's how do we expose that program so that people can find it, even though they might not know that there is such a thing as textiles, let alone that there's a degree in it. So how do you allow students to choose their own adventure and, and make it accessible is, is a way to to nuance that and make it specific to that student based off of their their lived experience as opposed to the cross-referencing and IP lookups and geolocations and, you know, data mining, uh, things like the Census Bureau and stuff like that. Right. Now, you alluded to social media, and one of the things I'd be curious about, particularly in regards to sort of your uh, or ethos about uh, generational thinking is... Do you think sometimes institutions assume that they're allowed onto certain social media platforms or into certain media that, you know, maybe in particular teenagers, but maybe even with non-traditional students, maybe where the students don't necessarily want them to be? I, I think that certainly is. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's at least a double-edged sword in many ways, because I think most institutions, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but there, there was a, um, uh, a joke about the New York Times, um, and this was in right before the big crash and uh, and the recession in the 20s. And the New York Times never put a business story on the front page of the New York Times, and they literally put a news article about how the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at a, such a high level, and it went on the front page of the New York Times. And four days later, that there was Black Friday, so. New York Times is always late to the story. So if you actually are finding out about it after the fact, it's like institutions. It's, we're always going to be not very necessarily good at being on the leading edge of things. So, you know, for instance, we're on Facebook by the time only the parents are on Facebook. <laughs> right. We're on Instagram by the time all of the 17 and 18 year olds have already left it or are not interested in it. So there's the problem of always chasing it because, you know, by the time we catch up to it um, and becomes easy enough as an institution to engage in it, you're going to be behind the eight ball to begin with. So it's always something to be careful of, I think. And also really then being on the platforms for the right reasons, as, as you mentioned, to as opposed to, again, yelling out into the space and hoping that somebody picks up on your message, being there for how they want to engage with you. It's harder to track an ROI. It's harder to, you know, do those things, but you just want to be there for the spaces that people actually want to engage with you on. Absolutely. And you alluded to parents and Facebook. What role do you think parents play, especially as a VP of enrollment and somebody who uh, I'm sure has had uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of um, financial aid conversations? What role do parents play and uh, what role should they play in this whole college search process? Well, I've always had the mantra that we're not recruiting a student. We're not even recruiting a student and their parents. We're recruiting their entire family, particularly when, uh, again, back to generational stereotypes, and we don't want to dig too deeply into that. But uh, for a lot of families, it's a collective decision. You got to understand who the decision makers are of that and the important people. And that could be the traditional parents. That could be an aunt and an uncle. It could be a teacher. It could be, you know, just um, a really good family friend. And so, so unless you really understand first who are the people in that student's life, the, the, you know, the constellation that goes around that student, and we all have them, every student has them, you, but you need to actually start to figure out and ask them, you know, okay, who are the people who uh, need to be engaged in this conversation? And so I've always had that, that ethos uh, for many years. I mean, it comes up from financial aid that, 
there, there's not very many 17 or 18 year olds that are probably making a sole financial aid decision, you know, about going to school. There are, they're independent students certainly, and that's a whole different type of case to work with. But you're you're really engaging that collective environment of or the people who revolve around that student's life when you're trying to talk to them about what school is the best fit for them. How do you engage with those folks, whether they be, you know, the traditional mom and dad or, or perhaps a single parent or, you know, you mentioned the aunts and uncles, grandparents, teachers, coaches. How do you uh, how do you handle that? I think you do it by asking and being clear and transparent about how you are actually going to why you're actually asking for that that information. For instance, the common app is like, oh, they've always asked, you know, who's your parent? What do they do? And everything like that. But it doesn't do a very good job of telling you why you're asking for it. It's mm-hmm. just another data point. And we've really tried to expand out as we engage with that student to really get the the bigger picture and a bigger understanding of, okay, is it an aunt or an uncle? You know, is what's the relationship with the parents and the students, particularly for a lot of our students. And I think as the generations go by, this is more and more the case where a lot lot of our students have very complex families uh, more and more. And uh, really understanding that and being authentic and being transparent about why you're asking it. The last thing you want to do is if there's something going on in the family is to engage with both parents and one parent might, particularly our case, might be completely opposed to a student going to an art and design school. Mm-hmm. And you need to be really sensitive to that because otherwise you've just killed the conversation. So unless you start really asking those questions and being transparent about why you want to know it, like, you know, for instance, ask the student, like, like, who are the other people who are are involved in your college decision-making process? And then would it be helpful if they were involved in this? Would they like more information? Do they not speak English as their first language? And here are the resources that we provide for those types of families. Those are the types of nuanced conversations. And you can do it electronically. You can do it in person. But it's, again, building out that understanding of where that individual student is over time in a scalable way is, is certainly a challenge for many institutions. That's great. And, and you brought up a, a really great um, segue. As best as you possibly can, and without sharing any trade secrets, right? We don't want to steal CCA's secret sauces, but are there ways that you've uh, you've done that successfully? You've scaled that sort of individual attention? trying to decide how much my secrets I want to reveal. No, I'm just kidding. First and foremost, we we think we compete more than we actually compete as institutions. And we want to hold these things uh, dear and close and everything like that. And we think that somehow that's going to be the advantage, but those are short-term advantages as opposed to the longer term arc of students going to higher education. And if we truly believe that higher education is a, a game changer and a, and a, a marker that will actually bend the arc of a student's life and a family's life mm-hmm. in many ways. So uh, I'm more on the side of more sharing as opposed to like, oh, this is my secret sauce because you can be right in enrollment management uh, in three different ways. You can be first, you can be smarter, or you can cheat. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't suggest the latter. Um, right. This could be an interesting tagline for the entire podcast. And there's a lot of smart people out there. So um, it's helpful to be first, certainly, but that doesn't mean that uh, first is always going to be first or, you know, it's going to quickly turn up. So that's my rant and segue on people wanting proprietary things. So back to the original question, the things that we've found most helpful, I mean, we work at a scale that is 
easier than a lot of institutions. And, you know, for when you get 10,000, you know, 100,000 applications, and a lot of institutions are in a very different place than CCA, we're much more on the rolling admissions side. So, yeah, as opposed to uh, an institution where the entire game is telling people no. That's a hard game, but, you know, not a game that I'm that interested in doing. We can really engage with those students. Our admissions team spends anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks a year on the road, each one of them. And because they're going into actual art and design high school classes or community college classes. So we get a really complex, uh, nuanced understanding of where those students live and feed that information into our system. So then depending on who then they're talking to, whether or not it's then someone down the line like the financial aid office, they already have an understanding if they've if that student shared with it of what their family situation is. Not that we're using that to make admissions decisions or financial aid decisions, but at least they have some context of, okay, is it the mom? Is it a grandma? Is it an aunt or an uncle? So we're building out that profile around the student, but also being transparent with that student about the information that we are gathering with them. And that's that's those conversations. That's that nuance thing. And even in our marketing materials and our engagements throughout that student, we try to be very transparent with that student about why we're asking for this information or why it'd be helpful. And then offering them the options of like, okay, if you provide this, we can also give you these resources that will help inform that college going behavior. Since we're lucky enough, we have leadership, you know, senior leadership at this college who really believes that we want to make sure that students are the right fit uh, for CCA. Uh, we have that luxury in many ways, even though it's hard at sometimes, but we have that luxury where we want to make sure students are that right fit because we, the last thing we want is a student who's not retaining or not graduating because overall in the long you know, the five, 10 year plan, you know, for CCA, that's not a helpful position to be in. Right, right. Going back to sort of generational thinking and, and when we were on that topic, do you think there's a little a, less bird walking? <laughs> yes. Uh, do you think there is a, a danger potentially in students self-identifying with particular uh, generational traits? I think it can be dangerous. Like, I mean, I'll, you know, I, I keep putting out there that I'm a millennial apparently. So, um, and therefore nobody will listen to me. I, I think it can be a chicken and the egg um, type of situation where you're going to have either possibly two reactions to it. Either you'll see the generational label that is put on you and you'll reject it just because you don't want to be labeled as that and you'll push back on it when that's not the most important thing or you're more likely to then you know mimic that behavior and and do things that is like oh take from millennials or or uh, for instance that oh yeah they don't get married until they're in their 30s and then you're like well I shouldn't get married until I'm in my 30s or those type of things so I think everybody needs to find their path and so again labeling people the history of the world is um ripe with um labeling people and how badly things turn out and as generational thinking is certainly not on that scale but of the quote unquote how bad that can be but again it once we label people uh, as groups, it, I think it does more harm than good. Absolutely. And uh, so to start to, to wrap up, are there any particular prescriptions or recommendations you would make to anyone who might be uh, a director of financial aid or director of uh, admissions or maybe a new VP of enrollment on how to, uh, to scale, how to uh, how to manage sort of these identities without uh, coming off creepy, any of the things we talked about? Yeah, certainly. I think it comes down to, you know, starting with 
uh, getting a, a baseline understanding and really start to engage with these conversations with the people you work with um, as a basis and start putting more and more of it out on the table. So if it's under a basic understanding of like, let's start with understanding this is the research out there that currently exists and this is the spectrum of research um, about generational thinking, I think is, is a helpful starting point for a lot of people. And you know, back to your point of there's a whole spectrum of this and this is a conversation and a dialogue that's been going on for a long time. And understanding, that's the important thing about research in many ways is understanding that it's it's not just a standalone research article. It's an article or research within the context of other research. It's an ongoing conversation like any other language or music, for instance. It's not like there's a standalone music piece. It is informed by the things that came before it and will inform the things that go in, uh, into the future. And so understanding where this conversation is and start to have those more nuanced conversations of like, okay, well, this is helpful. We can pull some things out of here. This is also helpful on that end of the spectrum. We can pull some things out of here. And then I think that helps set the stage for a larger conversation around, you know, what are our student populations, you know, and really starting to break those down and understand that there's not one monolithic group, even if you're a traditional four-year liberal arts education and 95% of your students are freshmen, you know, traditional freshman students, there's a lot of nuance into that, into that student group or you know for a lot of our institutions which is the reality is like there's not just one group of students that is our primary student and that continues to change and evolve as we go over the next five ten years as it always has before that's great and uh, you mentioned research just now is there any particular research that um, you've done or you would highly recommend based on uh, generations or enrollment management any of the topics that we've discussed you mentioned it earlier I think you should be a well-informed critic of research. I think that's the most important thing from uh, my doctorate work. And, you know, you should always push back on stuff, but you need to start by understanding everything from, uh, you know, William Strauss and Neil Hall all the way over to Adam uh, Conover. Mm -hmm. And then you start to get, if you subscribe to any or get your name on any of the marketing institutions in higher education, you're going to probably receive research or white papers about generational thinking. That's the primary areas of most current stuff is coming out of, you know, marketing institutions and you do need to take them with a grain of salt that you know they're producing white papers in order to encourage you to probably buy products mm -hmm. uh, no offense to my colleagues who work in those industries um, but I think you should you should really engage with this as a conversation and as an informed uh, consumer of that information just like you know buying a car or uh, shopping for you know the next iPhone or something like that it, it's gathering all your data points and and continue to take more and more of it in as you become more and more uh, advanced in your understanding of research. I guess, could you talk a little bit about your path from Stanford and Chapman to becoming now the vice president of enrollment at uh, California College of the Arts? Yeah, sure. Of course. I started off in financial aid. I kind of fell into it like most people in financial aid. I was finished up my undergraduate degree at Chapman University in history and political science and um, was interested in getting into education policy work and had started a master's program there. And they came to me and said, we have a job in the financial aid office. And I was like, well, I was a poor undergrad, you know, so um, I don't know anything about financial aid other than I needed it. Um, and so I kind of fell into it. And like most people in financial aid, you get into it, you didn't prepare for it. And then three, four, five, you know, years go by and you can never get out. So 
Um, I finished up my master's program at Chapman University, um, and then my wife uh, was originally born and raised in San Francisco, so um, there was an opportunity to jump back to Stanford University, where I worked at the business school for a few years, again in financial aid. And at that time, I was interested in doing a doctor program and wanted to continue my research um, areas as well. And um, I started that program at San Francisco State, um, a really great program um, that's really focused on social justice and a cohort model that brought together everybody from people who were working in the pre-K space up through higher education like myself. And so it was a great mix and a broad mix. At that point, a job posting had popped up for um, an associate director job in financial aid at a school that I had never actually heard of, California College of the Arts. And so I started to do a little bit of research and found out um, a bit more about it and was lucky enough to be offered that position here and moved to California College of the Arts. And the joke is, I thought it was going to be like a two to three year position, thinking that I was going to finish up my doctor program. And then I really wanted to be a director of financial aid. And I no idea what was beyond that. You know, usually the glass ceiling of financial aid is the director of financial aid. Uh, the joke about I have at CCA is that every two or three years, they seem to offer me another job. I'm not sure exactly why, but I can't say no to that. So at the time when I was looking for a director position, our director uh, left and they offered me that position. And then a few years later, there were, um, our director of undergraduate admissions left and our, our VP of enrollment management at the time uh, had decided that she wanted to retire in another few years. And they created an an AVP position for enrollment. At that point, I stepped outside of the world of financial aid for the first time and oversaw admissions, undergraduate admissions here at CCA. And then time goes by and um, our VP of enrollment uh, actually retired. I thought she was joking when she originally told me that she was going to retire because you know, I never saw her retiring. And the, lo and behold, they offered me the VP of enrollment management uh, here at CCA. And I've been in that role uh, now just about a year and a half. Wow, that's great. Now, as a VP of enrollment, I would imagine most folks who get to your position come from usually undergraduate admissions, but sometimes maybe graduate or non-traditional. So uh, first of all, is that true? And then second of all, uh, how has that impacted your experience in that role? Exactly. I mean, traditionally, the track into the VP of enrollment management has certainly been admission for many, many years. I mean, the space of enrollment management in general is a fairly young field. I mean, it only dates back to the mid 80s at best. So it is a very young field. But traditionally, as you said, it's always almost always been the director of undergraduate admissions. It's seen as that is the, the pathway. Uh, more and more, though, the skill set that I think is needed for really successful VPs of enrollment management and enrollment management in a lot of institutions come out of people that don't necessarily have that traditional admissions experience, the, the focus on data, on analytics, on the use of financial aid has put a new position for that original glass ceiling of director of financial aid. And more and more people are stepping into that space. You know, NASFA now has a particular track at their leadership conference that you know really focuses on that. So I think it's it's coming into its own over the next uh, over the past few years as we see more and more people coming up from the financial aid space. Not to you know dig on uh, people from the director of admissions uh, or undergraduate admissions. I think there's there's skill sets that are are broadly based that everybody needs. So, but I think it's it's coming into its own with the director of financial aid and the skill set and the experience that the, those people can bring to the table. That's great. And lastly, we ask all of our, our guests to sort of come up with a title for this episode or sort of a quick uh, quote they would uh, call this episode. So what would you call this podcast episode? I mean, I'm going to steal my AMA, but I would go with um, get off my lawn. That's great. Well, again, Dr. Klein, thank you so much for your time today. 
And thank you everyone for listening. If you have any questions or if Mongoose can help you in any way, please feel free to email me at mike at mongooseresearch.com. We also have lots of great content at mongooseresearch.com, on Twitter at mongooseHED, and on Facebook at we.rmongoose. Until next time, thank you so much.